one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Talking Space episode 336 for the week of Sunday, September 11th, 2011. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Suffering a little bit of a ravage of the cold, but, uh, but here, and uh, before we even start, I want to go ahead and, uh, since today is September 11th, I want to go ahead and express my, uh, uh, my sincere condolences to anybody that was affected by it. The doleful events that took place about 10 years ago, and a huge thank you to uh, all of our first responders here in the United States and our, our military worldwide. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hi-ho, strangers. Yes, it is good to be back. We apologize for the unannounced three-week summer break, but we know you guys have been waiting for it, and we are back, and we are raring to go. Yeah, I think, her, I think Hurricane Irene had something to do with that, but that's okay. <laughs> it was only going to be two weeks, but yes. Anyway, <laughs> Gina Hurley, he is currently away on business, and we'll be back in a little bit, so don't worry, she's still here with us. Anyway, let's get things started off with the most recent news of this last three weeks. So the biggest news was the launch of two spacecraft, which was Grail which were launched successfully on their way to study the moon from core to crust. And Mark, you were there for all the pre-launch activities as well as launch itself. So if you could please give us a little bit of an update on GRAIL and the mission and the launch, we would appreciate it. Let's talk about GRAIL. Uh, GRAIL was interesting. I caught bits and pieces of some of the pre-launch news conferences, the science briefing, and the more I learned about Grail, the more interesting it is. And this is really a banner year for for launches to do exploration. What with Juno, Grail, and MSL coming up in a little little later in the year. But Grail is a uh, fascinating spacecraft. I saw a reference to it that uh, we were sending twins to the moon, and that's exactly what it is. And as one thing that was a little different from what we're used to with with so many launches, where they have you know, anywhere from like the shuttle with a 10-minute or so launch window to sometimes even longer launch windows for satellites. Grail only had a one-second launch window. It had uh, two opportunities, uh, basically two opportunities per day um, in the neighborhood of 45 minutes apart. Their first launch attempt was scheduled for September the 8th on Thursday, and they had basically problems with winds that day. So that was a no-go on the two attempts on Thursday, September 8th. 
They took uh, Friday and elected not to try on Friday because they had some anomalies that they saw in their telemetry off the rocket uh, in preparation for those launches that they wanted to look at. So that bought them uh, 48 hours. And on Saturday, they launched on their second launch attempt. And it was, uh, you know, a little bit of a nail biter to, to think of everything that has to go just right. And it come down to a one second window where you can't stop. In fact, several times they were talking about launching a balloon to check the upper winds. And I think on the first uh, launch day, they actually said, well, we, we've launched a balloon and the winds are red and we don't have time to launch another one before uh, we lose the window. So we're out for today. But on Saturday, September 10th, they certainly did launch. It was, uh, it was quite a sight from Cars Park where I was at. Uh, that was one of the locations. I guess they switched from Causeway out to Cars Park, and, and I was out there next to a lot of the tweet-up folks that were there for Grail. And the tweet-up's another subject that I'll, that I'll hit on, but the launch did take place at 9.08.57 Eastern Daylight Time, September 10th, and off she goes. Uh, it's interesting to hear the, the call-outs that the launch commentator made as the vehicle as the vehicle accelerated and, you know, the call-outs of, you know, it's Mach 1, it's, you know, 2,000 miles an hour, and, and here you are at, uh, let's see, about 908 to 912, maybe four minutes into flight, and it's going Mach 15, more than 11,000 mile an hour. And I saw a reference that somebody made that following the uh, first stage shutdown that uh, they were going into a parking orbit. And, uh, you know, a parking orbit at uh, over 17,000 miles an hour. I don't remember the exact number, but it's like, okay, that's what you call parking. But uh, anyway, the launch went off great. It was a good day. Visibility was good. Quite impressive to see that uh, rocket with the six solids that, that burned for the first minute and dropped the six and three airlit solid boosters carried up for about another minute or so and then she flew on the first stage the rest of the way and you could see the rocket arc up and out to the east and off she went and it was it was quite a sight the uh tweet up if i could hit on the tweet up briefly they had uh some speakers that many people that that listened to us may have may have got bits and pieces of this but on their first day in the afternoon they had some uh real Real treats, and my wife was there for the tweet up. Her Twitter handle is Mary underscore Andromeda, and uh, if you look for a lot of activity from her on Twitter, you see some here and there, but mostly it's best to catch her face-to-face because she's already talked to uh, several dozen people in the 24 hours, maybe a little bit over 24 hours that she's had at home since all of this tweet up experience. But uh, she's telling everybody, in fact, poor guy at McDonald's Saturday morning at 5 a.m., we're headed out to uh, catch a ride out to the launch viewing site. And this poor guy at McDonald's says, uh, where are you headed or something? And we told him. And he says, for what? He says, well, they're launching a rocket. They are? (laughs) He didn't know that NASA still launched satellites. He didn't know anything. In fact, uh, after about... 30 seconds of conversation, I was ready to, you know, bail out and, and seek my sandwich somewhere else. And uh, my wife persisted. And before we left 
in a matter of just a few minutes, she had the manager, she had the uh, guy that was up front, she had two or three other people, and they all came out, and they were wanting to know, well, what time is it going, and will we be able to see it? And, well, okay, we'll go out there and see if we can catch it. So, you know, she's picking up uh, picking up people and drumming up interest. So, But anyway, speakers for the tweet-up, Administrator Charlie Bolden, Jim Adams, who's NASA Jim on Twitter, he's Deputy Director of Planetary Science Division, Another speaker was Veronica Wu, who talked about MoonCam. Sammy Asmar, the Grail Deputy Project Scientist. Maria Zuber, the Grail Principal Investigator from MIT. They had Doug Ellison, the JPL Visualization Producer, do a demo of Eyes on the Solar System, which from everything I've heard, and I haven't looked at the site myself, but Eyes on the Solar System sounds absolutely phenomenal. A ULA representative for NASA programs, uh, Vern Thorpe. Another gentleman, Stu Spath, who is the chief spacecraft engineer from Lockheed Martin. And probably one of the things that uh, was just super exciting to people was, was hearing, well, let me, do, let, me, let me tell you part one and part two. Part one was Nichelle Nichols from the original Star Trek series fame. And help me out, I remember her last name. Uh, Uhura was her, was her character's name on Star Trek. But she spoke to the group, and uh, they also had an opportunity to see her and get autographs from her uh, the following day out at the visitor center, where she was there for visitor center public, um, you know, public kind of photo op and, and talk to the crowd. But at the end of the day, that uh, that first tweet up day was Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we talked about recently on another show, and they heard him speak, and he was out there with them on the next day for their first launch opportunities out on the causeway. And I remember reading on Twitter that somebody said, wow, we just got a 20-minute um, intro into astronomy with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And my wife says that he is just extraordinary to, 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 be, to be there and to hear him talk. And uh, she's, she's, a, uh, she's a convert. He's got a book coming out later this year. And she says, I'm going to get it. I'm going to read that book. That really sounds something. So the uh, NASA tweet up, once again, they... They, they keep raising the bar, it seems to me, on everything I hear about these tweet-up experiences. People are, are quite impressed, and uh, it was quite a good day, especially when we got to Saturday. And unfortunately, a lot of people couldn't stay for Saturday. They had their time and travel plans, and uh, you know the, the tweet-up was Wednesday and Thursday. And when it uh, pushed another two days after that, they lost some folks. And I think they had maybe... Uh, it was less than 80, probably in the neighborhood of 50, 60, something like that, that, that made it out there for launch. And, uh, but they got a treat. Yeah, Mark, you were talking about some of the, uh, the things that NASA has been doing as far as you're concerned. And uh, I think the, essentially what they're trying to do is, is get people that you know, don't really normally follow the space program off their wares. And um, in, in the hopes of those folks being sort of inspired and, and to take some of that inspiration back home to where, where they live and to talk about it with other folks. And uh, I had the, the uh, pleasure of talking with one of the, um, the tweet-up attendees, a uh, young lady by the name of uh, uh, Justine McKinnon, who hails from the U- UK. And she was uh, relaying some of her experiences, first off meeting uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I believe um, uh, she actually said that he had borrowed – the her her camera for a little bit she said she's never going to wash the camera again uh, but I, I think she was a blown away by the launch of the delta two and uh i 
she told me she was getting choked up a little bit watching that Delta uh, take off because she she described it to to me as sort of like a another sun in in the sky as it was launching. And Mark, you can Sawyer, you can sort of relate because you and I, you, you, all of us have seen shuttle launches. Um, but uh, to to a first timer, this this was this was absolutely impressive. I believe too, Mark. She indicated, and I think you you spoke of too that that the, that the uh, crew went into the vehicle assembly building to go take a look at uh, the shuttle Endeavor, which is being uh, safed for uh, um, display over in California. And the uh, the tweet up, uh, everybody that went in there was just absolutely just floored because she was describing it as still dirty and still showing the. Um, you know the uh, the the pings and dings from the last mission, and uh, uh, that was that that this indeed had had been in space as long as it had been, and it it she told me it kind of shivers up her spine. Um, did she notice anything about any of like the major pieces, like some of the engines and uh, other Ohm's engines that are missing? Did was that she didn't up? go into yeah she didn't sorry she didn't go into a lot of detail, but she did mention that. Uh, you know the, the I believe that the the nose cap or part of it not the nose cap the uh, uh, that one one uh, where the uh, the uh, forward RCS thank you uh, the reaction control system was not you know in place um, so uh, but still it knowing what that vehicle is and knowing what it's done for the past thirty years she said it was enough to send you know shivers down your spine but um, to a note to the folks that uh, have uh, uh, organized these things. Um, I think your 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 plot is working to get people more enthusiastic about spaceflight because she's she'd come in this she'd never been to you know the Kennedy Space Center before, never seen any of this, and uh, just had a fleeting interest in this um, uh, due to uh, due to Twitter. And came away. Now she's she's wanting to go ahead and start her either either start a uh, a, a you know a grassroots organization to support space space flight or find a grassroots organization locally that supports space flight and join that and be a part of all this because she's leaving the tweet up with with a feeling of how can we help how can we keep this stuff going so um, hats off again to. Uh, um, to all of those who organized uh, this particular tweet-up, so congratulations. Whatever you're doing, it's working. Uh, Justine McKinnon, the individual I was talking about, um, she uh, she's hoping to get her um, uh, her experiences out on her blog spot on her blogs. She asked me to mention it, so I'm going to go ahead and and mention it here, if if you folks don't mind. It's um, fidget f i d g e t dot travelerspoint dot com. So if um, she's going to be throwing her thoughts about the past few days on there, and um, we'll uh, we'll get that. We'll uh, if anybody's interested, go ahead and take a look. When you were there, I know that um, I believe your wife was was she actually part of the tweet up, and uh, did you? get to go along and maybe talk with some of these people that were along the way yes she was part of the tweet up and uh, that's where i got a lot of this uh g wow kazawi type impressions was really you know from her 
and uh, it, just just as a uh, to thing to give people a feel for what this is like if they haven't been to a tweet up the first day, they uh, got out and and uh, had intros of the group and they got to tour uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and parts of uh, Cape Kennedy, the VAB, etc., which we talked about. They also uh, had this this three hour plus session with uh, hearing some of these phenomenal speakers. And she said that later that night, she said her brain was pretty much fried. She just couldn't couldn't think coherently about uh, about things because there was so much just really five star information that uh, that they got to that they got to hear from these world class people. And Mark, I understand you ran into some other fascinating people along the way. Yeah. Now, did I get to tag along? No, I was I was there with with thousands of us that wish we had been, but. Um, when it came to launch day, uh, I was, I was free, I was free to travel down there and was able to spend some time, uh, out alongside some of the tweet up folks out at cars park, which was where they saw a launch from. And in the process of, uh, getting to talk to some of the tweet up folks and, uh, found out that they had a former employee a 15-year veteran of the space program with a shuttle who was uh, somebody that had a absolute wealth of goodies to share. And I've got one that I'm going to set up to play so we can, uh, we can get a little bit of that shuttle goodness back in, back in, our, uh, in our minds. I'm here with Kim Goodace. She was on our bus as we came out here from the uh, meetup point and found out that she's got 15 years' experience close up and personal with the shuttles, with the orbiters, and uh, she was uh, eager to share some of her experience in, on the bus with questions and answers, and I, I didn't record that, but I figured, well, we might get a chance to talk while we're here waiting for the launch this morning. Absolutely. So, uh, welcome to Talking Space. Thank you. Good to be here. And 15 years with the program? 15 years with the program. Um, did several jobs out there. I uh, was an orbiter electrical engineer for four years. I uh, worked on uh, all the wiring on each of the orbiters. There's over 200 miles of wiring on each orbiter, um, as well as the uh, cockpit panels. If we had an issue with those, we'd pull them out and send them to our uh, logistics uh, depot, and they would... Um, they would do the repairs, and then we would reinstall them. Um, and then for four years, I worked on the fuel cell system, which powered the vehicles when they were on orbit, and uh, worked on the potable and wastewater systems. Uh, that includes their drinking water, the uh, cooling water for the avionics, as well as the uh, bathroom, the potty. Um, and then for the past seven years, I've been a, uh, a pro- uh, project engineer. I was one of the lead project engineers for uh, the shuttle Endeavor. And uh, I was pretty much a liaison between Johnson Space Center and Kennedy Space Center. I know somebody asked the question on the bus, how did it feel seeing Endeavor and the VAB? You know, it's kind of gutted and stripped and partway through the process of decommissioning. Yes. But, um, you know, how do you, how do you feel looking forward to, you know, where they'll be on display? Is that a, something that, that you're excited you're still going to have a twinge of uh, of hurt when you see them what do you what do you think ahead it's mixed emotions um i think i finally accepted the fact that they're not flying anymore um so now that i've accepted that knowing that uh, people around the country can share in what i had the opportunity to work on um i got paid to work the greatest job in the world 
and uh, to be able to share that with the country um, and the world is is something I'm I'm really looking forward to. It's it's still sad that we're not flying, but I'm still really looking forward to to sharing it with everybody up close and personal. That's that's good to hear because that's how I felt. I felt the regret and uh, and and you know thinking about it. You know we could still be flying, yeah. but I thought you know there's going to be thousands of people that are going to be able to get as close as the facilities will allow them. They right. may be able to touch it. And that's not something yeah. that anybody but you and I'm sure hundreds and thousands of workers over right. the years have right. had that experience. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely a surreal feeling to know that, that these things have flown in space. And uh, they, they live and they breathe. You know, for us, we, you know, you, you go into the high bay when there's nobody in there and you can hear them talking to you. It sounds weird, but you can hear them talking to you. You know, you ever get mad at an orbiter when you had problems? Oh to heck deal yeah! With? <laughs> it's like anything else. You know, it's just like if you're working on your car. You know, you get frustrated. Um, you don't get mad mad at them per se. You get frustrated, um, but then you just sit back and think, you know what? This thing flies in space. This is pretty cool, and and you do you know everything you can to to make sure it's safe and and it, it kind of that frustration rolls off your shoulder pretty quick yeah you never never like a car where you slam the hood exactly kick the tires, never, never 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 it's more of good orbiter <laughs> pet it like a dog yeah yeah um i'm curious thinking about uh, orbiters you saw them post flight mm-hmm. did you ever run across anything and you may or may not be able to talk about anything specifically but did you ever see anything post flight that if you had known about it during the mission, would have scared you for the safety of the crew or, no. or anything like that? No, I can honestly say no. Um, you know, we've had our problems, you know, and if, if something if something was to go wrong, it would go wrong. And, uh, and we would know it on orbit um, or pre-flight. And uh, I, I can honestly say I've never seen anything or heard of anything that was, oh, my God, if this happened a day ago. You know, no. They're that good. Mm-hmm. And the crews are that good that maintain the them, got them ready to go. Yep, and the crews that fly them are, are that good. They're yeah. the elite. Yeah. I'm curious, thinking about the elite and, and hearing about how good the record was and how safe it was and how safe the program ended up. Here they had a problem with a Soyuz cargo launch recently. Um, I don't know. I haven't really focused recently on any details, except it was third stage and, right. and engine. And that's about all but, I know too. Uh, yeah, and, and you know the investigation is 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 ongoing as as with any any failure. Um, I just don't know the details. They're really not releasing too much, so I, I just don't know the details yeah, of it. It's not our rocket, so exactly. Uh, yeah, we're kind of limited on what questions exactly. we're going to get answers exactly. to. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Endeavor, you referred to as being your baby. My baby. Uh, one of our one of our crew on the podcast Sawyer refers to Endeavor as his girl. We may have to fight over him. Oh, over her. She's my baby. I'm her mama. Okay, Sawyer. <laughs> Sorry, but you got some competition. <laughs> How about people? Um, I was at the Discovery Media Day where they let the press go up and oh, go I on was board there. Discovery. Were you? Uh huh. Yeah, I got to go in the afternoon and see Discovery and awesome. go inside the crew compartment. Oh. The, the, nice. biggest, the biggest thrill for me was walking around. We went to the aft end of the orbiter first. Right. And to be able to look inside that aft compartment. And how big are the fuel cells? I, I, the fuel it, cells? Were they, were they in that aft no, compartment? No, the fuel cells are actually in the mid-body. Uh, fuel cell one was um, in bay two on the left-hand side. Fuel cell two was on bay one right-hand side. And bay 
two right-hand sided fuel cell three. Um, the fuel cells themselves are about mm, three feet long by about a foot wide by about a foot high. Oh, wow. And there's only three. There's the three of them. Not, not gigantic. Not gigantic at all. Now, there are five tank sets. There's uh, five hydrogen tanks and five oxygen tanks. Your hydrogen tanks are about four and a half feet in diameter, and your uh, oxygen tanks are about three and a half feet in diameter. Um, and they're stored, the, the uh, hydrogen itself is stored at uh, minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit, and the oxygen is at minus 298 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's super cool. Um, and that's all in the mid-body as well, throughout the mid-body. Um, I asked a question of one of, the, one of the gentlemen that was there for the media day, and, uh, and it, it's tough to, to ask it to where it makes sense, but any, any funny stories, any people stories about the people you worked with wow. that, that people wouldn't object to being told? I'm sure there's both, <laughs> but, but any, uh, any of these you know, great remembrances of folks that you I, worked with? I think the biggest thing for me, um, there's, there's so many, um, so many great memories out there. Um, and they're sad memories. Um, but I think, for me, I think that the best thing I can say about the people is their family. Um, you know, yeah, the orbiters are our kids. They, you know, they live, they breathe. We, you know, we take care of them like they're our children. But the people are family. Um, if we lost one to an illness um, or if one retired, um, especially with all these layoffs, um, it's, it's very difficult to... Um, to say goodbye, you know, and, and in today's day and age, it's a lot easier because we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have email, we have cell phones, we have the capability of staying in touch with people. It's not the same, obviously, because you're not seeing them every day. I mean, I spent more time at work than I did at home. Um, but to the, the people are, are just, you know, it's so much to a point that, um, the Monday after we lost Columbia, We'd be, you know, you'd go to work and you'd be walking down the hallway and you'd run into somebody you don't even know and you just went up and hugged them. You know, that's that's the type of family that we have out there. And that's, you you're ne- you don't find that. You know, we, we worked on something so unique. And so I was one of three people in the world that did the job that I did when I left. There were three vehicle engineers for, my, for, for what we did. We were three people in the entire world that did what we did. And very close. You know, I mean, it's just the way it is. You know, and, and to, to pinpoint an event, I just can't. There's too many good memories. Kind of, kind of a nonstop flow over yeah. the years. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Every day. Every day, something new. Well, you know, hearing about the people that are that are part of the shuttle program, it makes sense. Um, gee, in 1994, I transferred from, from one location to another. And the, uh, the gentleman that was retiring, whose slot that I was taking over, he had a hat with the pin on it. It was a one-year pin for NASA. Oh. And I thought, you know, here's a guy yep. who has worked probably 30 years with the FAA, yep. and I don't see anything about FAA, yep. and he's got a NASA pin. Yep. And it kind of bothered me because at that point, I was midway through my FAA career. Right. I was proud of, of the work that I did, proud of the people I worked with. Yep. And here's somebody that's prouder, apparently, of something else. And now I understand because yep. even in the FAA, and we're a bunch of uh, technicians that are can-do, and mm-hmm. we're going to get it done, and if it's impossible, we'll still figure out a way to do it. Right. Um, you know, I thought that, that there was something really unique there. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I, wear a, I wear a shuttle on my, on my chain. My mom bought this shuttle for me 
right when I got my job out there, and it's obviously the only necklace I wear. Um, and I haven't worked for four weeks, and I will never take this off. I don't care what vehicle we fly in the future. I don't care where I work. This will always be around my neck because this was my life. Well, I got a feeling that uh, we could keep talking for another 30 minutes, but if I did, I'd uh, have a really tough time whittling it down to get <laughs> something that we could put on a show, although we could always have a whole show and Absolutely. just devote it to Shuttle Talk. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think anybody would be disappointed with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But um, I would talk for hours about my shuttles. That's <laughs> wonderful. That's so cool to hear. Well, thanks. I hope you're you'll uh, check us out. Absolutely. Maybe spread the word. There's somebody that's talking about everything from A to Z with, with space. Absolutely. And, uh, and we have a lot of fun with it. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. Mark, you could tell there's a lot of respect there still for the for these vehicles for the, from the folks that used to work on them. And the, the one comment that I recall hearing um, – was you know you can hear the the vehicles talking to you while you're you're standing there, and I kind of sort of you know felt the same way when when I went to see Endeavor. Um, I mean, um, I'm sorry, Discovery. Uh, back during STS 134, you could just hear her talking to you, and um, it's neat from a from a shuttle worker that uh, had worked on these vehicles for 15 years that you could tell the moniker of respect that they still have these incredible machines and for the for the uh, the opportunity that they had to to work on these vehicles and and knowing that they had a unique opportunity during those years so again hats off to everybody that used to work on on these ships you know the, you guys treated them like, like like kids and treated them with respect so again thanks Mark, that was an incredible find. Thank you so much for bringing that that over here. That was that was amazing. And I asked a question. Uh, this wasn't on the recording, but I asked a question. I said, I said, are you here uh, via NASA or the visitor center? Is, is this volunteer? And she said, No, this is totally just because I want to. She said, I'm not. Uh, I'm not being paid for this. I'm a, I'm a volunteer. And uh, it's one of those things that uh, is just a privilege for me to do, to be able to share and be able to see people's reactions with the things that I can tell them. And the great stuff, Mark. Again, thanks for sharing. I'm, and okay. I apologize that we keep having to send you out on these very difficult and rough assignments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll do what I can. It's a dirty <laughs> job, but somebody's got to do it. Take it for the team. You do what you gotta do when you've done it, so thank you. All right, so let's continue on here with our return of Talking Space after our break. And the next thing that we're going to talk about was something that came up a couple of weeks ago, and that involves the International Space Station. The crew of Expedition 28 was scheduled to return uh, as of this point. However, their current landing is now scheduled for September 16th, because of an unmanned Soyuz spacecraft that launched a progress resupply vehicle which was lost and crashed back to the ground in the high deserts of Kazakhstan. Since then, they are not launching any further manned Soyuz missions until they can confirm exactly what happened and make any changes necessary so that the Soyuz is once again safe to fly. With that said, the current crew that is on board the space station 
their time is rapidly approaching an end as well. So, what happens after that? Will the International Space Station become unmanned? Let's get a little bit more detail onto the crash as well as the possible future of the International Space Station. I will take you folks in my little time machine here and go all the way back to uh, the end of July. Um, actually, yeah, toward the tail end of July anyway, around July 21st. Um, the Space Shuttle Atlantis lands at uh, the Kennedy Space Center at the Shuttle Landing Facility. Um, STS-135 completes the uh, the shuttle era. That, uh, as you, as everybody here in the sound of my voice knows, that we are not flying the, the shuttle anymore. A few days later, um, an article appears uh, not in 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 the Russian press, but right on um, the uh, on the Roscosmos website, which kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, they were kind of sort of. And I thought this was sort of rubbing our nose in it a little bit, uh, sort of bragging about the the Soyuz reliability, um, and now that that uh, the the Atlantis is, is down um, and the uh, the shuttle program is over, um, it's going to take a while for even a lot of these commercial spacecraft uh, that are being developed, like the SpaceX Dragon, and the Dream Chaser, and so on. Um, uh, to come anywhere near the record that the Soyuz enjoys on reliability. Even the Orion is going to have to have its shakedown crews uh, and, and sort of earn its, its, its way into having the reliability stamp put on it. But here is old reliable, the Soyuz that's been around for 30-something, for for. 40-something years since I believe the first Soyuz flight was around 1967-68. And, you know, they were bragging about, you know, welcome to the epoch of Soyuz, the epoch of reliability. And on this program, I kind of said it was probably a little foolhardy to go ahead and start pounding your chest and bragging about reliability because um, this is one of the reasons why you never see airlines brag about reliability because if something really were to happen all of a sudden – you know, you're, you've got a ton of a, a. You've got a ton of egg on your face, and and B. Now you have to you have a, a you know a public relations nightmare because now you have to figure out a what went wrong technically, but B. You know you've been touting your reliability record. Also, it's kind of funny too that uh, they kind of messed up on on remembering the the pyrobolt problem that they have had on the Soyuz a couple of um, years prior to that little you know. Of reliability announcement that kind of gave uh, Peggy Whitson a, a little bit of a, a ride on her reentry from the International Space Station. That pyrobolt problem was solved, and um, it, the Soyuz moved on. So <clears throat> now we come to the failure of the Soyuz U booster, and uh, uh, with uh, Progress 44, that was destined for the International Space Station. Progress 44, as as for those of, that are uh, uninitiated, is a robotic vehicle that uh, is designed to go ahead and robotically dock National Space Station to bring supplies and so on, and allow the astronauts and cosmonauts to go ahead and pack out the trash, basically, uh, to throw all the trash inside the Progress, and the Progress goes ahead and and burns up re-enters the Earth's atmosphere and burns up with all the ash. But um, in this case, we lost um, we lost the progress. 
uh, somewhere in the uh, in the uh, Siberian tundra there. And um, uh, there was a press conference about maybe two weeks ago uh, that Mike Suffredini, the uh, ISS project manager, uh, held in response to all of this. And uh, at that press conference, um, sorry, you kind of alluded to this. Um, the expedition, part of the expedition. Uh, 28 crew, which also which includes astronaut Ron Garin, was supposed to return on September 8th. That date got pushed back to September 16th in the hopes that maybe we can get some more science done. Um, the problem with the loss of the Soyuz booster essentially means you cannot fly the Soyuz spacecraft piloted um, because the Soyuz spacecraft uses the Soyuz U booster to go ahead and and fly, um, which basically essentially means nobody can get to the International Space Station right now. We do not have – the shuttles are no longer flying, and uh, we do not have a viable vehicle to get to the International Space Station at this time. It's a scary – Scary proposition in that we have a one, you know, almost a, a, a what, what is it, a $100 billion investment that we can't get to. And that's what essentially has led us to, uh, um, you know, all this, this talk about policy and so on. And our short sightedness has basically messed us up. So, where do we go? The possibility exists because of the shelf life of the Soyuz. The Soyuz can only remain docked at the International Space Station for about 200 days. And that's due to propellant leaks and things like that. Um, you have a situation here where, where you're going to go from from a um, a six man crew on sixteenth to a three man crew, which I believe astronaut Mike Fossum will take command of the International Space Station at that time. Um, now that crew will have to come down. On November 16th. Again, this is due to the shelf life of the Soyuz. It has nothing to do with the ISS. There is a possibility that if the Russians do not get the problem with the Soyuz U booster fixed by November 16th, uh, the ISS will begin unmanned operations. A lot of in the press have been saying, you know, the ISS will be abandoned, and I thought abandoned was a strong word. According to Mike Suffredini during the press conference, they could go into a unmanned posture and remain that way for an indefinite period of time, but it would be safer uh, to ensure the safety of the complex if there were people on board. Um, you're in a far better posture to make sure the, that the vehicle is safe, if, obviously, if, if you have people on board because – designed to have humans on board. Um, there's, I believe they're going through some studies now about what science can take place uh, in an unmanned um, or, or an unpiloted mode, but there may be some other science you could do um, in an unmanned uh, posture. The problem is, though, I would figure your life sciences uh, research would come to a grinding halt. Um, Will this happen? I don't know. I've, I heard an announcement somewhere along the line this week where um, uh, Russia was saying that they had found the smoking gun on the Soyuz U booster uh, issue. But if this problem is not solved and not solved soon, um, we can 
go into an embarrassing, almost an embarrassing situation where where we cannot get to an asset that you know this nation has spent basically, I don't know, you know, a lot of money on, um, and wasting that that asset's uh, ability to to be used. Um, and again, I, 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 it's it's an embarrassing posture to be in. So let's take a poll around and see what we think. They they figured that we'll know by November whether it will be unmanned or not. But let's take a poll amongst ourselves. Do you think the ISS will go unmanned? Well, uh, correction, they're going to have to launch. They, they want to figure out what's, what's, what's going on. So my, my feeling is they'll probably launch one or two um, progress spacecraft before they'll throw a Soyuz on it to make sure that, that whatever fix they've uh, uh, concocted is actually operational. I think we're going to go on. I think we are going to go unpiloted. I think we are, uh, but I think we're going to be. Um, I don't think it's going to be for a very long time. Um, but I, I just, I'm not getting the warm fuzzies out on this one. I think we are going to go unpiloted, but we're we're probably it's probably going to be a short time. We'll probably see um, ISS back um, in op- operation by uh, by first quarter next year. Mark, your thoughts. I was all set to go right along with Gene, and uh, I was even going to put some times on it, 30 to 60 days unpiloted, and then I was going to throw a joke in there about, uh, well, Robonaut can handle it. R2 will still be on board, so he can fly. You know, it's funny, Mark. Somebody had said that. I mean, they just activated Robonaut 2. In fact, somebody had mentioned something like that on Twitter, and I, I kind of said, well, the problem is with Robonaut is Robonaut has to be taught. how. To- right now, it doesn't have that knowledge. And we have to teach it to, to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, we haven't had the time to do that yet. Well, so. I, I think Robonaut's one of those things that anything that uh, they could, first they'd have to position it. It's not mobile. It can't move around the station. But anything they could position it that it could do, they can do from the ground. So, um, I mean, Robonaut can pick up a piece of paper. He can shake hands. He can push buttons and, and turn things and do an incredible amount. But uh, not not quite there yet. But uh, I'll retract everything I've said. I, I do not think that they'll they'll go unmanned. I think that they'll uh, keep a crew up there. Well, I guess they can't. They got the lifetime on orbit for Soyuz, so they reach a point they've got to bring their folks down. Right. Um, okay. In that case, I'm back to 30 to 60 days unmanned. Yep. I guess that brings it back to me. Yes, sir. My belief is that they won't do anything until it's safe. However, I do not believe that the ISS will go unmanned. Here's my thought process, is that they've already believed that they have identified the problem. They already think they know what it is. They've mentioned that in reports before. Very shortly, they'll be going back to testing, in my opinion. And it it should be ready to go before November. I have a feeling within the next two to three months, they can figure out a way to prevent it from being unmanned. And my prediction is is that it will remain manned and continue the record for longest manned presence uh, on a single station. We'll see who's right. Um, I, I, I have my reservations on that one. The reason is, too, I don't know what progress vehicles are in the pipeline, what Soyuz you pro- use are in the pipeline. Um, and how that fix has to be be applied. So, um, 
again, we'll we'll just have to see how how it all shakes out. Thinking we'll probably go to. I'm I'm still I'm still in my my um, my assertion that uh, we are probably going to go unpiloted, but it's not going to be. The other thing that uh, was mentioned there, Sawyer, was um, uh, debris avoidance maneuvers. Could you do that from the ground? And I recall that question put, being put to Mike Suffordini. He said, yeah, any debris avoidance we can also do from the ground, but I think that's a good lead-in for, uh, for, uh, for our next topic. Yeah, beat me to it. That brings us to our next story, which involves a piece of space junk that happens to be floating around in space right now. And that is the Upper Atmosphere Research Satellite, launched in 1991, which is scheduled within the next couple of weeks to come back down to Earth. Here's the part that's scary. We do not know where it is going to land. So watch your heads over the next couple of weeks. Am I right, Gene? Yeah, the, um, the the satellite, the uh, upper atmosphere research satellite, it was really responsible for monitoring, you know, things like the ozone hole and things like that, and giving recommendations and data as to uh, to how things are going, and also measured the amount of ozone in the atmosphere, and was actually uh, one of the satellites to um, excuse me to say that um, indeed the, the the amount of ozone because of excuse me a lot of the um, Restrictions that we've placed on on that particular chemical have been reduced in the atmosphere and was monitoring that. Um, Again, it was launched in 1991 by the Space Shuttle Discovery to give you an idea on uh, on how big this thing is. When it was launched, it filled Discovery's cargo bay, essentially. It was the only thing in there. So that tells you how large this is uh, to give you an idea. Uh, shuttle Discovery could fit about maybe four elements in there, so uh, for weekly, you know, for for you know weekly flights. So if it really wanted to, um, so it, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a big deal. Thousand pounds carried about ten instruments, um, and uh, uh, was decommissioned in 2005, and now uh, because it was brought into a a lower a lower orbit. Than it was, I believe the the first uh, altitude it was at was at an, at an altitude of about 375 miles, according to the uh, uh, the UR's website, um, which I'm looking at right now. Um, it uh, uh, has no longer the vehicle doesn't have any propellant on board, so there's no way you could go ahead and control this thing from a propellant standpoint. Um, you know, uh, I was able to listen in on the uh, on the news conference that uh, talked about URs, and uh, <clears throat> they're predicting that about 26 pieces are probably going to survive reentry, um, and they have that are attached to them. But uh, as Sawyer, you 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 had pointed out, right now they do not know. Where this thing is going to land, it uh, it could be anywhere between, and this was was said in the conference, um, 57 deg- degrees uh, north latitude by 57 degrees south latitude, which basically c- covers the area between Canada and South America. So again, we're not sh- too sure where this thing's going to land. Well, that, uh, actually, that's a good thing to know because that way the people in Antarctica are safe. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, but uh, um, once more, um, they said that uh, the U.S. military will continue tracking the vehicle um, and uh, will provide updates and let us know where this thing is. Um, the uh, idea, but the odds of this thing impacting um, anyone, like you know, a piece of cars coming through your house or something like that. Um, was set at the press conference to be anywhere between one and thirty-two hundred. Um, so, you know, again, the the, the odds of, of of you getting a piece of URs in your garage or your 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 roof um, are are kind of small. Um, however, they they did give the warning that uh, any any piece of debris from this thing that's found is property of the U.S. government. Don't put it on. Don't pick it up. Don't eBay guys, uh, notify your, your local authorities, and uh, they will go ahead and, and return it to uh, to NASA. But um, the the scary thing is is that this is the, the, this is the biggest piece of, of basically space flotsam uh, that uh, has we entered since Skylab or since uh, Mir. And uh, so, so that's why it's getting a lot of media attention. But um, this goes hand in hand with a National Research Council report that was also, I believe, on on uh, September first, um, that basically said that uh, something called the Kessler limit has been reached, or a, a tipping point where uh, debris will basically constantly collide with itself, thus creating more debris and taking out the problem you know in an exponential way so um, this is a huge huge problem uh, we're in the process right now of trying to figure out how to develop low earth orbit commercial companies are looking at low earth orbit as a as a commercial venture now uh, and we're not just talking about sending astronauts to the International Space Station Bigelow aerospace is talking about setting up inflatable space stations for um, companies to conduct uh, research. Uh, Boeing, I believe, has an exclusive contract with Bigelow and, and deliver crew uh, using the CST-100. Their their entry into the into the COTS program. Um, you have uh, not only just 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 the future problems, but the current problem that you, that you've got. You've got communication satellites up there that we depend on for. Oh, I don't know for 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 GPS um, and not. Are we're talking about ships at sea and so on? Um, we have uh, transactions being sent by satellite every day. Um, I mean, the satellite technology is just so ingrained into our everyday life that um, if one say if a weather satellite got by a piece of space debris. You know, your your weather predictions have gone down. You know, at least a few fold, and uh, you know that could be especially during hurricane season. Um, demonstrated here on the east east coast, where uh, we're here in New Jersey, we're still feeling um, I, I, the the after effects from Hurricane Irene. So, again, you you could you could see how this could be a problem, a huge problem. Um, and and to, you know I mean to give you a, a case in point, you still have little you know bolts and, and paint chips even traveling at 
at speeds between 17,000 and 24,000 miles an hour. Um, imagine if, if you're sitting in a spacecraft and that impacts your window. That really could be a bad day if, if that's not a, a good hardened window there. So uh, there are there's there's threat to uh, to here to uh, to human spaceflight as well. Um, I had a I conducted an interview um, with two recent Singularity University graduates uh, on scale and uh, Dr. Lucy Rogers on this particular topic, and that uh, um, this this was a topic primarily of their research over at Singularity University. And uh, we're going to go ahead and, and run that, that interview in its entirety this week. Uh, that will be a separate available download, so, uh, so watch for that. Um, it, it was an intriguing uh, uh, hour that I spent with both, and uh, I think you'll find it on this particular topic. But, uh, again, it's, an imp- it's a problem that impacts everyone, so um, you know, please you know, pay attention and, and have, a, have a good listen to that one. Alrighty then, continuing along to our next story is that uh, for those of you that believe the moon landing was a hoax, LRO is there to say in your face because it took (laughs) some very high-resolution images of some of the Apollo landing sites, and it gave us some very interesting images of some of the remains of the landers and even paths of the lunar rovers, right? Yes, yeah, Sawyer. The um, LRO made a very, very close approach to uh, the lunar surface. Um, the the distance, and, and somebody's going to check me on this, but I think the distance was about 25 uh, kilometers above the surface. Pretty darn close, and it won't be that. And um, it really delivered some very high resolution images of the uh, Apollo 14, Apollo 12, and um, uh, I believe the Apollo 17 uh, landing sites. Uh, you could clearly see the descent stages of, of the lunar modules. You could clearly see, I believe, in one site you could actually pick out. They actually picked out the flag um, that's that that's sitting on, on the lunar surface there. Um, you could actually see the uh, the lunar rover of uh, of the Apollo 17 site, kind of with its wheels tilted and, and so on. But the neat thing is the Apollo 12 graphs. You could actually see the tracks that um, Pete Conrad and uh, uh, Alan Bean made, and uh, they three hours, something like I believe it was 15, 1,500 meters, which um, on foot is is no no small small accomplishment. But you can actually see how that particular EVA played out from from the LRO pictures and it's really really, really quite fascinating the um, the descent stages are, are sitting there in all its glory the the Apollo scientific packages are, are there in all their glory and they're they're kind of just sitting there waiting for us kind of it's sort of a tease um, it was asked if uh, during the conference if if you know why they go ahead and take a look at the Apollo sites um, the answer was A, because it's fun, B, uh, because we know the exact position of the, uh, uh, each one of these descent stages, and they act as benchmarks, so um, nav- sort of navigational bench- benchmarks for LRO. So if you want to make sure that your navigation is still operational, you could go ahead and use these sites because we know the exact coordinates of each one of these things. That's, one, that's another reason, but... Um, 
And there's some science uh, that can also be done from that vantage point. But the idea, too, uh, somebody had brought up conference was that it calls back a time when we were able to do this and uh, it, it's sort of like these pieces of equipment are sort of looking up back at us beckoning us to return hopefully one day we will so again those images of the landing sites are if you have not seen them they the quality and the detail in them is absolutely spectacular and I highly suggest taking a look at those LRO images and let's continue on to our final story, which, as we mentioned, the recording date of this show was September 11th, 2011, the 10-year anniversary of the tragic day in the United States when four planes were hijacked, two were crashed into the World Trade Centers, one into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one was taken down by the passengers in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. And... Uh, the World Trade Centers, pieces of the metal have been distributed to many different locations, but I believe some of those locations were announced that they aren't even on Earth. Right. There was, a, there was an essay by uh, Alan Boyle on uh, MSNBC, his, uh, his Cosmic Log uh, uh, site, um, where uh, the rover Spirit and Opportunity – it was announced. Well, it wasn't just announced. It was announced a while back ago. But this is sort of a reminder um, that uh, the rovers Spirit and Opportunity uh, have on board uh, two um, small aluminum shields that were forged from metal um, from the World Trade Center, and uh, uh, I believe too that this uh, a flag on that. That metal, um, the the U.S. flag is on there to go ahead and and represent all of those who lost their lives that day. And um, Steve, I believe the background is that Stephen Squires had waited to to go ahead and um, uh, let the families know that. He had done that till after the the vehicles that were safely safely on Mars, but also to, you know, not really put that around, not look for any recognition. He he did that on just because it it, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, and uh, it had nothing to do with uh, um, looking for any you know or anything like that. Um, it is. Uh, I believe uh, the aluminum on board is fashioned from metal from both Tower 1 and Tower 2. It's just saying it's nice to know that the uh, uh, memory of those who had lost their lives that day uh, will be there on Mars for millions of years, while those who perpetrated the crime will be long forgotten. So, uh, again, on this day, you know, bless the families we lost, and uh, bless our first responders and uh, our, our military for keeping us safe. And again, thanks, Steve Squires, for, for thinking about putting pieces of, uh, of the Trade Center on Mars. Thanks. And on that note, I believe that brings this episode to a close. So once again, we'd like to thank everybody who stuck with us even after our unannounced three-week break. We tried to announce it on Twitter and Facebook, which... If you don't follow us there, we suggest that you do. 
But um, anyway, we'd like to thank everybody who joined us here on the air. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Got through it and then with the ravages of this darn cold. But again, thanks everybody for putting up with the uh, with the time and uh, we're back. I know the feeling. I didn't even say it, but I'm sick here myself. And I'm trying to <laughs> mute every time I cough so I don't hurt the fans' ears. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And this seems a little belated, and I guess that's a good uh, good way to approach it. But I'd like to thank you guys up there in the Northeast for hosting the hurricane so that uh, Florida got off pretty much unscathed from this, just a little bit of surf. Uh, sorry you had the troubles you did, but thanks for taking it off our backs. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, boy. I could, I could think of a whole town right now that's just saying, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Now, there's there's no good stories about about weather when it's as severe as that was and uh, you know I'm, I'm I thought about you you folks and Gene up in uh, Massachusetts the whole time but uh, well we'll get our turn I'm sure appreciate it Mark again I hope you don't get your turn seriously yeah thankfully I, I myself personally wasn't as bad since I'm currently not in New Jersey I'm in upstate New York lucky me. Furthering my education so that I may continue to educate you, the listener, about space, even though it has nothing to do with space. Anyway, on that random and completely out there note, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we will be back once again next week. So in the meantime, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go grab it.